Would you turn with me, please, to Jeremiah 31? Jeremiah chapter 31. This uh, particular chapter is the uh, center of the book of Jeremiah. It is, uh, in fact, the centerpiece of Old Testament theology. And in a very real sense, it's the center of the entire Bible. If you understand Jeremiah 31, you have, uh, uh, you, you have some understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For, for most people, the Old Testament is, a, is an unknown book. It's, uh, it's obscure. It's the part of our Bibles that we don't uh, read very much. Uh, it's what I describe as the clean part of our Bibles. Uh, that's the part of your Bible that cracks when you open it. I, when I announced uh, the first Sunday we were going to study the book of Jeremiah, uh, the spine on most people's Bible broke when they, uh, they opened to this particular book. It's, uh, the Old Testament is about an ancient time, an ancient culture, a different culture. And for most people it's uh, simply a very difficult book to understand. I, I have a feeling that the, that the names that we use for the two divisions of the Bible are largely uh, responsible for our, uh, for our misunderstanding of the Old Testament. We call the two divisions the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now we need to understand those are not biblical terms. That terminology doesn't come out of the Bible. A man by the name of Origen who lived in the third century A.D., is the one who's responsible for that terminology. And uh, if you know anything about uh, Origen, he was one of the Greek church fathers, and he had a, a very low opinion of the Old Testament, and in fact it's reflected in, in the terminology that he used uh, for the two divisions of, uh, of the Bible. The, um, the Old Testament. The Old Testament. You hold it about, about six beats. And... Uh, then there's the New Testament. Ah, what a relief it is to read the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of, full of law, and uh, God has a very long and frowny face. He's a sort of uh, cosmic policeman who goes around uh, maintaining law and order and justice and, and uh, snuffing out fun and inhibiting us when we, uh, when we finally find something that we really like to do. But uh, when you get to the New Testament, it's all uh, grace and forgiveness, and God is infinitely tolerant of our, of our shortcomings. Thus, uh, reading the Old Testament is like hitting yourself over the head with a hammer. It feels so good when you quit. At least that's the way many people feel. Uh, that's what most people perhaps feel about, about the Old Testament. The, uh, the word that the apostles, Jesus and the apostles, use... Uh, for the Bible is simply the writing. They use the Greek term hey graphe. Hey is simply the article. The and graphe means writing. There are a lot of English words based on that uh, on that root. Graphics and uh, graphology and those sorts of terms that refer to writing. They called it hey graphe, the writing. That was Paul's term for the Old Testament. And uh, that's also his term for the New Testament, as well as, uh, as well as Peter. Peter talks about how hard it is to understand Paul. And he says, some people, through uh, willful ignorance, uh, twist his writings as they do the 
other scriptures. And he uses the technical term for the Old Testament. So as far as Peter was concerned, Paul's writings were hey grafe. They were the scripture. And that's the way that the Bible looks at itself. It is one book, not two books, not even 66 books. It is one large book with 66 separate units telling the story of God's salvation from the creation of the human race to, uh, to its ultimate uh, consummation. That's what the Bible is all about. You say, well, that's not really true. The Old Testament is all about Israel, and the New Testament is all about the church. But if you read the New Testament carefully, you'll come to see that, uh, that the apostles considered the church to be Israel in a spiritual sense. Most of the, the promises that are made to Israel are, are given over to the church. And the church is called the Israel of God. And I don't think that, that fulfills everything God has in mind for Israel. I think God yet has a purpose for Israel. But the apostles were very clear when the Old Testament was talking about Israel. In the New Testament, those promises are applied to the church. So uh, the whole Bible is about God's people, whether we call it Israel, ethnic Israel, national Israel, or uh, the Israel of God, a spiritualized Israel in the New Testament. And then you say, well, no, there's, a, there's another difference. The New Testament is all about Christ. Well, so is the Old Testament. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament looks back to his coming and on to his, uh, to his next coming. So the whole Bible is about the church, if you want to put it that way, the ecclesia, the called-out group of God's people, his assembly, and the whole Bible is about Christ from beginning to end. It's one book. Now, I, I uh, pondered a long time whether I wanted to do this or not, but I think I, I must in order to understand Jeremiah 31. You really cannot understand Jeremiah 31 unless you understand what precedes it. So I want to take about ten minutes and go back to the beginning. So stick with me, will you please? Uh, you may get bored and drop out along the way, but try to stick with me because unless you understand what's going on in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31 just doesn't make any sense at all. As you know, it all began in a garden. That's the beginning point. Uh, the serpent caught this lovely young lady that God had created for the man out in the open, and he said... Uh, do you know that you can be a god? Sounded like a pretty good idea. It was a big fib, but it sounded good to Eve. Uh, oh, I used to live in California. I don't tell many people that, but as long as you're friends, I'll tell you that I lived there for 18 years. And uh, the town we lived in, Los Altos, backed right up to the Santa Cruz Mountains. And I used to go up into the mountains to a monastery that uh, housed uh, Mary Knoll Fathers, retired uh, Catholic priests that uh, had been missionaries in China. Uh, they were interesting uh, people to talk to, and they had a great library. And they, they were housed in an old mansion in a, uh, uh, an, an orchard in a garden out in back. And I used to get books out of their library and sit in their garden and read. And uh, I was sitting there one day reading the Bible, and the Bible in my lap, and I sensed something right next to me, and I turned, and hanging out of one of these uh, gnarled uh, live oak trees was a snake. 
a long green snake like this, and about that big. I have no idea what kind of snake it was. Really, very pretty, sort of an iridescent green. And uh, he had his tail wrapped around the limb, and he was hanging down, and his had his head up like that, and he was looking at me. He was about four feet away. And I had this uncanny sense of déjà vu. And then, <laughs> we've been through this before. Sort of a racial memory, I suppose. Coming back, I, if he had the only th- 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 it would have made the story much better if he had talked, but it was not a talking snake. I already had it figured out. If he talked, I was going to whack him with my Bible, but he <coughs> the snake didn't say anything. But it, it just reminded me of of the lie, the big lie, the the big bungle, as someone has called it, that uh, that that pits the entire human race into into ruin. If somebody comes around to your house and they tell you that you have God within you already or that you can, by uh, some procedure, become God, don't believe it. That's, that's the lie. That's what Eve uh, uh, bought, and that's what she gave to Adam, and Adam bought it, and the human race has been buying it ever since. And that's the trouble with us. That's what destroyed the human race. Instead of, of being a people dependent upon God, and trusting him and resting in him, we've, we think of ourselves as little tin gods. We can run our own lives and live, live uh, out of our own adequacy, and we have all the resources that are necessary to live life and, and uh, enjoy it. it. simply isn't true. It's a lie. But God didn't leave the human race in that predicament. At, at that point in history, he intervened, and he, he cursed the serpent. He said to the serpent, your seed and the seed of the woman will have everlasting hostility. There will be a cosmic conflict that will be played out in a spiritual realm between the descendants of the the woman and the descendants of the serpent. And then he shifts gears semantically. He says, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, in Hebrew as in English, the word seed is a collective noun. We use seed both for for a handful of seeds and for one seed. In Hebrew, it's the same way. When God said the seed of the, of the woman will have hostility or have conflict with the seed of the serpent, he was thinking in a collective sense, and then he shifts to the individual sense of the noun. He, one of the seed, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, the, what he's thinking of is a man stamping on the head of a serpent and inflicting a mortal wound on, on the serpent. The blow is lethal. The serpent dies, but in so doing, he, he, he bruises his heel. He hurts himself. Now, that's what theologians call the protevangel, the first giving of the gospel, the first statement of the good news, that, that someone with a capital S would someday come along and he would trample on the head of the serpent and crush it underfoot and put, put an end to this great enemy of mankind, but he would, uh, he would inflict great damage upon himself. It would hurt him to do so. Now, I want you to imagine something. This isn't really true, but you imagine it. Imagine a little box, a little wooden box. And inside is a golden seed. And, and God placed that golden seed in the box, and he handed it to Eve at this point, and he said, this is the solution to the problem that faces mankind. Someday this seed will sprout and produce a life that will put an end to all the havoc that, uh, that Satan has, uh, has worked in the human race. The seed someday will save you. 
So uh, Eve is given this little box with the seed and the promise, and she, she cherishes it. Now, of course, the seed was carried in her body, but for purposes of your imagination this morning, I want you to imagine a little box with a golden seed and a promise. And Eve, of course, was excited about the promise, and so was Adam. He named her Eve. The Hebrew word means living, since she's the mother of all living, and she would be the one from whom the seed would come and would sprout, and eventually the Savior would, would come who would save the human race. And they talked about it. They shared it with people. And, and they carried the box, but, but they told people about it. And whenever anyone believed it, really believed it, four things happened to them. The first thing that happened is that they had a, a, a sense of forgiveness of sin. All of the things that they had done in, in the past, those things were wiped away. And secondly, they began to sense God's presence. They could walk with him and fellowship with him. And uh, third, they began to want to know more about God, become more aware of who he was, not merely know that God existed, but know him personally and intimately and be like him, share his life and his character. And finally, they were given a power to perform. That is, they, they began to discover that they had the resources to change their lives and, and to act differently, act in line with God's plans and purposes. Now, that's what happened all the way through the Old Testament. Those four things occurred. There was a sense of forgiveness. There was a sense of God's presence. There was a sense of God's power and a desire to be what God wanted them to be. And you find that true of people like Enoch who are described as walking uh, with God. The, the verb tense that's used uh, suggests walking back and forth, here and there, hither and yon, and wherever God uh, went, that's where Enoch went. He just walked with God. Now that little box was passed on from generation to generation, and the long, slow count began. At times, the the number of people who believed in the, in the seed was very small. At the time of Noah, there were only eight. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And out of those, uh, the, those three families, the three sons and their wives, God uh, chose Shem, one of Noah's sons, and he gave the box to him. So the human race came to see that, that one-third of the human race would carry the seed. And then... Uh, Along about uh, 2000 B.C., this great giant of a man that we know as Abraham came stalking out of Babylon, formerly a moon worshiper and a pagan, and, uh, and the little box was given to him, and Abraham said, I believe. I, I, I believe that salvation is in that seed, and, and things began to happen to him. He, he's described as the friend of God. God said, how can I withhold anything from Abraham? He just he gave him everything. Because he believed. Abraham passed the box on to Isaac, his son. And Isaac passed it on to Jacob, his son. So now we know that, that the seed is in the possession of one nation because Jacob became Israel, the father of, of the nation of Israel. One of the reasons Esau is judged so severely in the Old Testament is because he didn't want the box. He sold out for a little bit of momentary pleasure. He'd rather have something in his stomach than to possess the box. But Jacob wanted the box, even though he was a crafty, scurrilous old fellow who uh, 
never seemed to get things right. He, he, he wanted the box. And that set him apart from his brother. And uh, Jacob passed it on to Judah, who was one of his sons. He had 12 sons and one daughter. And his sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the box went into the hands of Judah. Jacob said, from you Shiloh will come. We don't know exactly what Shiloh means, but it probably means the one for whom it is intended, that is, uh, the, the one who was predicted all along, Shiloh, would come through uh, the tribe of, of Judah. And uh, it was held in that tribe for years and years until David came along about 1,000 B.C., and, and it was given to David. And when Nathan told David that he was to carry the box, David got so excited. He said that I should be the recipient of the law of the man, as he calls it. He, he was thinking back to the story of Adam and Eve and the promise of the man, that I should be the one who carries the man. That's what set David apart from all of his contemporaries. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. He had his problems. You know, he, he didn't always do things right, but, but he had a great heart for God because he loved the box and he loved the seed. And he looked forward to the coming of the seed. He knew he wasn't the seed. It was coming. He says in one of his psalms, speaking of one of his sons who would be the seed, he said, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, that's incredible in a Semitic culture because a, a father would never refer to his son as my Lord. It's the other way around, as you know. It's still true in Oriental cultures. The father is the one who is the Lord. The son shows respect to the father. But David says, looking down as one generation after another passed the seed, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, you are my son. So uh, he realized that one of his descendants would be the seed. Jesus used that argument with the Pharisees when they, uh, they, Jesus said to them, whose son is Messiah? They say, David's son. Well, Jesus says, why then did David say, and he quoted that psalm, the Lord said to my Lord. They didn't have any answer for that. And, and on from one generation to the next of David's descendants, the little seed was passed until we come to the time of Jeremiah. And unfortunately, by this time, there were very few who cared about the seed. It, it was still being carried genetically and in our imaginations in a little box from one generation to the next, but no one cared. They were busy making money and making a name for themselves and uh, furnishing their apartments and updating their stereos, and they were preoccupied with all of this sort of thing, and, and they, they didn't care about the sea. It didn't matter to them. They had, had other things on their mind. And God kept trying to get their attention. They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to listen. And so he brought the Babylonian army, and, and when Jeremiah wrote chapter 31... Nebuchadnezzar and, and the, the imperial army was gathered around the city of Jerusalem. They were besieging Jerusalem. And in a matter of weeks or months, they broke through the walls. They destroyed the city. They looted and burned the temple. They deported all the, in, the inhabitants. They put out Zedekiah's eyes, who was the king at this time, and, and sent him off to Babylon to die. It's in this terrifying context that, that, the book of, uh, uh, that this chapter of Jeremiah is written. Now, let's look at chapter 31. Actually, let's go back to chapter 30. Uh, this, uh, these uh, chapters, 30 through 33, are uh, 
are described by commentators as the book of consolation, the book of comfort. Uh, the exile is imminent. It's only a matter of weeks or days before the, the Babylonians take them off into captivity. And uh, they're being judged for their sins. But at this point, Jeremiah sits down and he writes a book of comfort and consolation to these people. That's so like the Lord. Right in the midst of our distress, he, he comforts. You see the same thing in Isaiah. Isaiah, from the standpoint of the 8th century, predicts this event, the exile. And long before the exile, 150 years before the exile occurs, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak comfortably to Israel. Tell her that her, her warfare has been uh, accomplished. She's been uh, forgiven doubly for her sins. Uh, here's a word of comfort addressed to the exiles before they go into exile. While they're still facing judgment, he comforts them. Uh, chapter 30. These are the words, verse 4, these are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. The Babylonians were right at the walls. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see strong men with their hands on their stomachs like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. He's describing the horror of siege and the starvation, the awfulness of, of ancient warfare. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob. But he'll be saved out of it. There's this word of comfort and encouragement and consolation that God is not through with Israel until he's fulfilled all of his promises. He says it's a time of terror. It's a time of trouble. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. He's thinking of the exile that's weeks or months away and it will continue for 70 years. But he says he'll be saved out of it. In that day, that is, in the, in the day of his salvation, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. It's in the character of, uh, of the Old Testament to describe Messiah in terms of a living David. He, Jeremiah is not thinking here of a resurrected David, but of a son of David, whom we know to be Jesus. So here on the eve of the exile, Jeremiah says, it, it's all right. I want you to be comforted by the fact that I'm going to save you and you'll come back to Jerusalem and you'll serve David, your king. Then in verses 12 uh, through 17, he describes uh, Judah's incurable wound, Judah and Israel. Throughout this uh, book of consolation, he uses the words for both the northern and southern kingdoms describing uh, a, a union of the two nations that had been divided since, uh, well, way back into Saul's time, even. This rift went. And now they'll be united. And uh, he describes this incurable uh, wound as uh, something that's beyond healing. And then in verse 17, but I will restore you to health and heal your wounds. And then in verses 18 through 34, he, he predicts the restoration of Jerusalem. Verse 18, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its, in its proper place. Hadn't even been destroyed yet. But Jeremiah says, well, after it's destroyed, it, it will be rebuilt. And in verse 22, he uses the ancient formula. 
that uh, you first uh, hear uh, in connection to the Exodus. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then in verse th- uh, chapter 31, verse 1, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says, The people who survive the sword will find favor in the, in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. They'll have another wilderness experience, much like the one in Sinai. They'll be sent off into, into Babylon in exile. But uh, there'll be another, uh, another deliverance. The Lord appeared to us in the past, verse 3, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's the word for loyalty. Loving loyalty in the Old Testament. And I'll build you up again. Do you realize that about God's love? It's, it's, it everlastingly goes on. It never stops. Even though he may have to chasten us, it never stops. Uh... I'm sure you uh, have had the experience of standing on a railroad track and looking down the track and and noting that the lines, the tracks converge. They tell me that's the the physical phenomenon of parallax, that that uh, parallel lines tend to form angles in the in the distance. And as you look down that track, it looks as though the track vanishes. There's a vanishing point where the track ceases. But uh, your experience tells you that that it goes on. And if you happen to be boarding a train at that spot, you, you don't fear that the train's going to run off the track when it gets to the, to the horizon because you know the tracks go on, and, and that's the way God's love is. It may appear to have vanished. Our circumstances may, may be hard and difficult and harsh, but, but God's love goes on. And that's what he's, he's telling his people. Despite the, the rigors and the horrors of the exile, I want you to know that but what I said in the past is true. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then in uh, verses 7 and following, there's a long section that essentially is a description of their, of their regathering. The key word is gather that occurs a number of times uh, in this section. Verse 8, See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim's my my firstborn son. It's a description of the return of of the exiles. This great throng making their way across the desert back uh, back to Jerusalem, and it will include the the blind who will uh, feel their way along and the lame who will hobble along and pregnant women who will waddle along. And, and, uh, but, the, but the path will be smooth and easy and I'll get them back. See, I'll bring them back. He who scattered Israel will gather them and watch over his flock like a shepherd. And uh, then in verse 21 of this chapter, Jeremiah says uh, to virgin uh, Israel, as he calls her, set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, O virgin Israel, return to your towns. Put up a signpost that says this way to Jerusalem, X number of miles, so that you won't lose your way or lose time getting back to Judah. Return, O virgin Israel. And that's an interesting 
way to refer to a nation that had been repeatedly unfaithful, had been uh, spiritually adulterous. And uh, yet Jeremiah says, you're, in God's eyes, you're virgin Israel. It's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. The uh, woman is Israel here. She's depicted all the way through the Bible. The man is the Lord. And uh, the, the word really means to hug. Uh, a, a woman will hug a man is the idea. She'll embrace a man. Israel, who for so long had run away from God and sought other lovers, will be restored to uh, her first love. And not only that, her love will be restored. She'll woo him. She'll embrace him. And uh, the verb that, that Jeremiah uses here, create, is the same word that's used in Genesis 1 for a, a, a new beginning, a new creation, doing something that hasn't been done before. I often use this, this verse in, in talking to women who tell me they've lost their love for their husbands. And uh, there's nothing there. It's all over. Uh, and uh, there's no reason to go on because there's no love there. But what Jeremiah tells us, with reference to Israel, and it's true of all of us. God can create love in a, in a barren heart where there is no love. He did it in Israel. Uh, he creates something out of nothing, where there's no affection, no desire to stay together, uh, nothing there. God can create something new. And uh, that introduces us to the new covenant. Let's uh, look now at verse 31. The time is coming declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now the covenant is made with uh, a distinct national group, Israel and, and Judah, united again. He's talking to these uh, folks who were in Jerusalem, Israelites, Jews, as they, were later, as they later came to be called. But when you come to the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament apply this this promise, the one that follows, directly to the church. You read Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. And the Hebrews 10 says very specifically, it was written to us. This is for us guys. This is for the church. This isn't just for Israel. It, uh, I believe, will be fulfilled in some time in the future in the nation of Israel. I don't know precisely how. God does not tell us. Scripture is silent. I don't think God is through with Israel yet. He, he has a plan for her. But for right now, what follows is for us. Now listen. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. And he's talking about the agreement that God made at Sinai when he said, I will be your God. And you will be my, teach, my people. I will love you. I will be loyal to you. I will give myself to you. I'll be your own private possession. And then he gave them the law, not as a way of becoming related to God, but as a way of working out that relationship. The law at Sinai was not the means by which people came into a relationship with God. It was an expression of it. Always was. The Jews in Jesus' day turned that around. They say, you've got to keep the law before God will love you. But it's very clear from, Genesis, uh, from Exodus 19 and 20 that God loved them and made a covenant, a pact, a contract, an agreement with them that he would be their God and he would pour everything at his disposal into their lives. And in response, they, they, they were to be like him. They were to be holy because he was holy. The Jews turned that around and said, no, 
No, you have to be holy and then God will like you. That's legalism. The Old Testament doesn't teach legalism. It teaches grace. God says, remember on the journey from Egypt down to Sinai how I, I bore you up on, on eagle wings? Do you know how a mother eagle teaches her eaglets to fly? They tell me. I've never seen it. I'd love to see it. She puts them on her back and she flaps up in the air and she dumps them off. And they start falling through the air, you know, flapping those little wings like crazy, trying to stay up, and they just drop like a rock. And, and, and the mother eagle will swoop underneath and pick them up and take them up again, dump them unceremoniously off her back, and away they go again. And she scoops under and picks them up until their little wing muscles become strong enough to fly. And, and God says, now, you know, you were like little eagles taking your first steps in statehood, and frankly, you weren't doing very well. You know, you're flapping hard, but you weren't doing very well. And I kept bearing you up. Kept bearing you up. That's a picture of grace. See, that's the way God dealt with Israel. He could say, be holy because I'm holy because he'd already committed himself to them. He was going to be a mother eagle. In their first attempts to try to be holy when they'd fail, he'd pick them up. As I say, the Jews had turned it all around. Made the law something hard and harsh and impossible and unyielding and unbending and simply wasn't true. And God says, I'm going to give you a new covenant, not like the one in, I gave in Sinai, not because the one at Sinai was wrong. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the contract I made with you. The problem is with you. He says, you broke it. So we're going to start all over again. We're going to start from scratch. We're going to do it right this time. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the, Almighty is his the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all that they have done. You see what he's saying? This is an unrevocable, unrustable, unbendable contract that I'm making with you. It'll never be rescinded. As a matter of fact, its continuity is tied into the continuity of the solar system. If you get up tomorrow morning and the sun doesn't come up, then you've got a problem. But if the sun is up, the deal is on. That's what he's saying. You can count on it. It's a fact. Now, now notice what the elements of the new covenant are. There are four. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That is, instead of the law being something external, written on stone, it will be in the heart. You'll want to do it what he's saying. You'll have an inner motivation to please me. Now I say, well, now wait a minute. 
Wait a minute, this is supposed to be a new covenant. Doesn't the Old Testament say over and over again that the law can be written on the heart? Well, certainly it does. In Deuteronomy, at least three different places, and other places in the Old Testament. Moses says, the law is written in your heart. And David says in Psalm 40, you have written your law in my heart. So I said, well, what's new about that? That's not new. Anyone who believed in the seed had the law written in his heart. He suddenly wanted to be like God. Well, the second provision is, I will be their God and they will be my people. And I say, what's new about that? That's an ancient formula that goes all the way back to the, the story of the Exodus. And their first steps in statehood and God commits himself to be their God. And they are to be his people. They have a, a unique relationship. They will, God is their possession as well as they being God's possession. And I, and I say that that was true of all of the saints in the Old Testament. Anyone who believed in the seed possessed God and God possessed them. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So he promises an intimate and personal knowledge of God, not only knowing God, but about God, but knowing him personally. And again, I say, well, what's new about that? Abraham knew God. Moses knew God. They had an unmediated relationship with God. Moses didn't need anyone to teach him about God. God said, I'll, I'll speak to him mouth to mouth, face to face. Abraham is my friend. Shall I withhold anything from Abraham that I'm about to do? He said. So that's nothing new. And uh, finally, he says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And David says in Psalm 103, and he wrote that uh, 500 years before this promise was given. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed your, my transgression from me. Forgiveness was part and parcel of the, of the old covenant. So I, I say, what's new? Absolutely nothing. And as a matter of fact, the word is translated new. It doesn't mean brand new anyway. It's a word that's used in Hebrew for the cycles of the moon, the lunar month, and it means renewal. Uh, the, the, the language that the Assyrians and the Babylonians spoke was called Akkadian. And this particular word is found in Akkadian, and the word there is used of temples that were rebuilt, that had been destroyed. It means to renew something or build something up that's been destroyed. Do it again, is the idea. And all Jeremiah is saying is that God is going to do what he's always done for you. If you believe the seed. Now turn with me to Luke 22. And this leads into our time of communion this morning. The Lord gathered with the disciples in the upper room for the Last Supper. We read in verse 17 that after he took the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup represents the new covenant. 
the renewed covenant inaugurated by my blood. By blood, he means death. Pouring out of blood is simply a symbol for the death, the giving up of a life. And, and what Jesus is saying is that everything that Jeremiah promised, everything that's always been true throughout all of history, is now yours on the basis of my death. I'm inaugurating the new covenant by my blood. And for these disciples, at that point, it all fell into place. They realized that he was the seed. He was the son of David. He was the Savior who had been promised from the very beginning of the human race. And he came, and through his death, he stamped on the head of the serpent. He did him in, but in so doing, he inflicted great pain upon himself. And everything that God has promised from the very beginning is given over to us. If you believe that, all you have to do is trust what God says and stop believing the lie that we can be God all by ourselves, that we can make it through life without any, any help. When we put our trust in him, four things happen to you. Some of you who have made that decision recently can look back and, and agree. That's precisely what happens. The first thing that, that happens is that there's this great, sense of relief that your sins are forgiven past present and future as far as the east is from the west so far has God removed your transgressions from you that you will never ever have to pay for any of your sins even the ones that uh, that are yet to be committed you're forgiven finally and ultimately and second there is a a sense of of God's presence and his power. He is your God. Your very special God. He's yours, not someone else's. He belongs to you. And you belong to him. And third, there is a, there is a desire to change. You, you, you want to be like him. And it's not something that happens because you grit your teeth and decide you're going to change. There, there is something that it's like the, the leaves beginning to come out in the trees now. In, in the spring, there, you know, the, the leaf doesn't you know, it's not a lot of effort. It just, it just begins to grow. And that's what you sense happening. A lot of us have, have been damaged in our past in various ways. You know, we picked up traits and habits from our parents and from others, our associates. And, and we lived that way for years because we just assumed that's the way you, you live. You know, you yell at your kids and you put your wife down because that's what your father or your grandfather did. And it was kind of fun to, to do that, you know, to needle her and give her a hard time and make her look bad in the eyes of others. And, 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 and then you begin to discover that that's not right. That's harmful. That hurts our relationship and you want to change. And it's not even that somebody tells you you, want to ch you need to change. You just know it. You just know it. And then finally, there is a sense of, of, of resource and power to change. You, you, you know that you can not merely wanting to, you can change. You want to align yourself with God's program and his way of getting things done. You want to be his entirely. Now, that's the message of the Bible. That's the new covenant. That's what ties together the two, the two books of the Bible. It begins in a garden with a promise. And it ends with the great consummation when Jesus comes back. And in the center of it is the birth of the seed. He came, just as, as Jesus said, just as God promised that he would. He came. He was here. He lived among us. He died. 
and he inaugurated this new covenant. That's yours if you want it. And uh, we're going to celebrate uh, this morning the, the table, which, which uh, symbolically points back to that event. If you've never uh, come to believe in the, in the seed, this would be the best time to do it. Now as we share together this, this cup and this bread. He says, we show forth his death. We make known his death until he comes in this way. Father, thank you for coming and freeing us from the sins that haunt us and leave us in despair. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for taking away the emptiness and the uselessness of life and giving us a future and a hope. And thank you, Lord, for your power that's available to us that enables us to walk uh, through the day with you in a spirit of rest and peace knowing that you're at work in us, both to will and to do, of your good pleasure. And thank you for writing your will upon our hearts, giving us a desire to want to follow you, a hunger, a yearning for you and your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for loving us that much. In Jesus' name, amen.